We thank you that has transpired this past week. Uh, the ministries that you gave us to do, uh, outreaches you gave us to do. Lord, we thank you for the life of Sarah Fox, that she lived her life to the fullest, that she lived 98 years of giving glory to you, of living her life for you. Lord, we thank you for uh, the, the time of, of grief, but also of, of celebrating her life that we had on Friday. Lord, we pray that Lives were touched with the gospel. It was presented very, very clearly time and time and time again throughout the service. So, Lord, we pray that your word would go forth to those who were at that service. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it does give us hope. It does give us hope in the face of death. Lord, we thank you that your word gives us life. That no matter what we go through week after week, we know that you will never leave us. We know that as was sung about, that you fix, you heal the broken. And you truly have amazing grace. Lord, I pray that as we come before the Lord's table in a little bit, that you will even now prepare our hearts to partake in that. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years back, back in uh, 2015, several different news sites ran a story about a young woman named Liz Woodward who waitressed at the Route 130 Diner in Delran, New Jersey. Has anybody been there? Route 130. All right, we got one hand. One day, firefighters Tim Young and Paul Hulling sat down in a booth at the diner after battling an exhausting fire. Woodward told the news that she had been following the firefighters' efforts on the news and saw that they hadn't eaten in 24 hours because they were battling this blaze. When she realized that Young and Hulling had entered her diner, instead of a, a, a bill, Woodward wrote on their check that their breakfast was on her for their tireless heroism. When he returned home, Young posted a picture of their check on Facebook and the post went viral. But Young's gratitude didn't stop there. After he and Hullings found out that Woodward had a GoFundMe account to raise $17,000 for a wheelchair-accessible van for her quadriplegic father who had suffered a brain aneurysm five years prior to that, Young again posted to Facebook again, highlighting, highlighting that cause and encouraging people to give to it. A specialty vehicle company found out about Woodward's cause and donated a $50,000 van with a retractable ramp built into it, and Woodward's GoFundMe page raised over $85,000. All of this came from one simple act of kindness. I'm sure Woodward did not expect the outpouring of love from thousands of people in 125 different countries when she paid for Young and Hulling's breakfast. It was a completely unexpected reward that came about in a completely unexpected way. A lot of different religions preach reward in the next life. But as we'll see from our passage this morning, a believer's reward may not be what we expect it to be and how we expect it to happen, especially for those leaders that God has called into the ministry. And as we've been working our way through this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth, we've seen the movement through the Holy Spirit that Paul follows. He starts out on a note that he wants to carry through the majority of this letter, and that note is this. What Paul is thankful for 
is not the spiritual gifts or the factions that the Corinthians were priding themselves on. What Paul was thankful for, as we see in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 1, has nothing to do with the Corinthians themselves, for the way that some of them were behaving was nothing to be thankful for. Rather, what Paul is thankful for is the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ who gave them their faith, and it was only through God's power that they were being preserved until the end. Next, Paul jumps right into the first issue that he sees needs correction in the church, and that was the division into many camps within the congregation, remaining staunchly loyal to different church leaders. Paul first rebuked them for the completely unbiblical and unchristlike basis for, what, for that behavior in chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, and then, as we saw last week, took a step back to lay the foundation for his teaching response towards that behavior in the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. What did we see last week? That God took everything the world saw as worthy and turned it on its head with his establishment of restoration to him through Jesus' death and resurrection. We spent a good deal of time over the past month or so delving into all the deep theological significance of that. Everything in our salvation and spiritual growth has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. Because of that, there is no room for any pride on our part. And as Paul reconnects with his original rebuke in chapter 1, especially in holding any church leader over another in loyalty, if everything in one's spiritual growth has everything to do with God and nothing to do with any human, then even a minister's work is led by God for the glory of God and as such is not a basis for anything selfish or prideful. And as we saw last week, Paul noted this quite strongly. He said, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, nothing, but God who causes the growth. We took a look at that last week. Paul's whole point in downplaying the church leader's ministry was for the purpose of the unification of the church in Corinth because he also pointed out, now he who plants and he who waters are what? One. How are the different church leaders of a church one? Because as we saw in verse 5, in reference to him and Apollos, the main leaders the church was dividing themselves up according to were mere servants through whom you believed, even as God gave opportunity to each one. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 3, 5. And like we talked about last week, the Lord is the one master, and the opportunities that he gives includes what he wants his servants to do and for how long he wants them to do it. Paul flows seamlessly from that overall point into what he says next in verse 8. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's what Paul focuses on in the passage we're looking at this morning. Paul does not want any misunderstanding of what he's just talked about in the beginning part of chapter 3. Paul wanted to unify the church again by downplaying the actual role ministers had in the church's spiritual growth because it was all ultimately up to God. But he didn't want to misconstrue that church leaders could just be lax in their ministry. He didn't want it getting around, oh, so if spiritual growth has everything to do with God and nothing to do with the church leaders, then I guess the church leaders can just kick back, relax, 
And whatever happens with the church just happens. No. As Paul points out, there is still very real motivation for church leaders to give it all they've got for the building up of the churches they serve and the building up of God's kingdom. That's what Paul first references in verse 8 here and then delves into more in verses 10 through 15 of our passage this morning. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue on in chapter 3. If you didn't, please take one from the pew in front of you and also turn there. I want all of us to see this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 10. And the first point that we come to in our, in our passage this morning, as you turn to our passage, chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, I want you to skim these verses real quick. Verses 10 through 15. I'll give, you, I'll give you a second to do that. Skim over these verses real quick. To some of you, these may look familiar. You may have read these before. And they may be especially familiar in connection with a certain end times doctrine. I want to clarify something clearly before we go on with this passage. The New Testament teaches that all believers in Jesus will stand before him and be judged. This is not a judgment of whether or not each believer will enter paradise, but rather a judgment of the heart motivation behind everything we said and did in this life. We know that it will not be a judgment in connection with eternal destination because Paul will write to the church in Rome, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There will never be a judgment of, of eternal destination for the believer because that has already been won and paid for by the blood of Christ. However, Paul will write to the Corinthian church in his second recorded letter to them, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice that. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not for judgment of where we're going to end up, but so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church in his second recorded letter to them. Again, when Paul notes that believers will be judged by Jesus for what we say and do in this life, whether good or bad, the reference to bad does not refer to morally evil deeds because the New Testament overall teaches that we will not be judged for our sin in the end. God has already legally declared us blameless in his eyes at the point of our salvation, known in theology by the term justification. So if we won't be judged for our sin, what does the term translated as bad refer to in 2 Corinthians 5 here? Well, according to one biblical scholar, the term translated as bad in the English is not the same word in the Greek where the New Testament refers to moral evil. It's the word for worthless. That's what the word is that's used there. Every believer will stand before Jesus to be judged for everything they've said or done in this life. But there will still be no condemnation for the worthless things we do. So if that's the case, what will, what will be the end result? We see in 2 Corinthians 5 that it will be recompense, right? And more specifically, when Paul writes to the Corinthians in our current letter about this event, 
He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. What will be the end result of that? Not condemnation, not... Boy, you really should have been better in that life. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. That will be the end result when all believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That is one of the gifts that we've been given because of our salvation. That's the recompense, reward and praise from God for the things we've done to glorify God. Now this process here for all believers may very well take place the way that 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, our passage this morning, describes it. But what I want to clarify is that while every believer will stand before Jesus for reward for the things they've done for him, what our passage this morning describes is the judgment process specific to human ministers of Christ's church. Why is that? Why is that the conclusion? If you look at the overall context of this whole section, go back with me into 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the first few chapters here. If you look for the overall context of this whole section, from chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 4, Paul is referring to the division in the church in connection with church leaders and what the proper view of church leaders should be. Within the more immediate context, our passage this morning is bookended by what Paul talks about in connection with ministers' relationship uh, to God's spiritual growth. And then what he says to open chapter 4, let a man regard us, him and Apollos, the other church leaders, let a man regard us in this manner as mere servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. We're nothing special. All we are are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of, of God. So what this means is that everything in between that, and including our passage this morning, is specific to ministers being judged for how they handled and stewarded the ministries that God entrusted to them. This goes hand in hand with what the author of Hebrews says when it's written, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Because why? As those who will give an account. Ministers will specifically have to stand before Jesus and give an account for how they shepherded the church that God entrusted to them. So with that in mind, let's read verses 10 through 11 of our passage this morning. I wanted to clarify that before we got into this. According to the grace of God which was given to me, Again, Paul's talking about himself as a church leader, as a minister. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now that we see this clarification that these verses were specifically in connection with a judgment for church leaders, we can see how the majority of biblical scholarship understands that Paul is contrasting two different types of church leaders here. He contrasts the wise master builder or the expert builder, depending on your translation in verse 10, with what one biblical scholar described as the unwise builder of verse 15. That's why I asked you to skim over all these verses before. Within the even more precise situation going on in Corinth, one biblical scholar posited that Paul is even referring to a distinct situation in Corinth. 
We know from verse 10 in the book of Acts that Paul was the one who originally laid the foundation of Jesus Christ in Corinth, the gospel, then left. In his absence, another powerful gospel preacher named Apollos arrived in Corinth off of Aquila and Priscilla's encouragement. Apollos won even more people in Corinth to faith in Jesus and was of great benefit to the church there. That was the situation that naturally led to the division into, into camps of loyalty towards different church leaders that Paul was rebuking and teaching them about in the first four chapters of this letter. In verse 10 of this morning's passage, Paul refers to himself as the foundation layer, and by implication, Apollos for his beneficial ministry there. Both of them were the ones who laid this foundation of Jesus Christ. But there's another one that Paul's referring to here in verse 10. There's another one building on that foundation laid by him in Apollos that Paul feels the need to warn here. This may be a specific person stirring up trouble or perhaps was even the leaders in the church of these different camps of human minister loyalty. There was a reason why Paul and the Holy Spirit felt the need to divulge all this information by way of the Spirit's revelation. Why did he go through? Why did he take the time and specifically lay all this out in verses 10 through 15? He, through the Holy Spirit, felt the need to divulge all this information. Within what we already know about the surrounding context, it would make sense that Paul is warning the divisive leaders in the Corinthian church what the result of their divisive behavior will be. So in order to do that, Paul first contrasts himself with those divisive leaders. He refers to himself as the wise master builder, laying the foundation of Christ. Again, in connection with everything he set up to this point, this is no surprise. Jesus, not any human leader, nor anyone's self-perceived spiritual strengths, is the foundation of the church. It is his church, and he is that church's head. Any under-shepherds that Jesus calls to steward his church will be held accountable to Jesus himself. It is Jesus' blood that saves the believers that make up the church. It is Jesus' resurrection that gives the church new life. And it is the sending of the Holy Spirit by Jesus and the Father that empowers, teaches, leads, and transforms the church. That is the never changing foundation of every Jesus-trusting, Bible-believing, and Bible-teaching church. It's probably a gospel song out there entitled that. <laughs> it is what is built on top of that foundation by the under-shepherds that the great shepherd appoints that Paul gives the warning about here. What is the difference between what the wise master builder and the unwise builder stack on top of that foundation? Well, that's what we get into in our second point uh, this morning. The result, verses 12 through 14. Follow along with me, please. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Paul first, out, first lists out the metaphorical list of what is built on top of the foundation of Jesus. What are those? Gold, silver, precious stones, What's not going to last very long? Wood, hay, and, and straw, right? 
In that reference, what would represent the gold, silver, and precious stones? Well, in connection with what we talked about at the beginning of our message, that would be the worthwhile things ministers said and did in their ministry. What would be worthwhile? Good and pure motivation behind their service, faithfulness in their commitment in the way they, they, they live to what God deems righteous, and also, just as important, an accurate, correct, and unabashed handling of their teaching of God's word. Just as important. Paul gives this strong commandment to his protege, Pastor Timothy. He says, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly or accurately explains the word of truth. That can be a very difficult thing sometimes. This verse was inscribed in one of the stone hallways of Moody Bible Institute, one that I walked by every day. And it's a verse that I hold very dear to myself, that I ask the Lord for strength every day as I seek to base my ministry on this, correctly and accurately explaining the word of truth, no matter how difficult it may be. What would be labeled as wood, hay, and straw? Anything that is not done, for the glory of God, or things that are considered worthless. According to one biblical scholar, this would include things that have no eternal value, like everyday mundane things, like going food shopping, taking a walk, washing your car, etc. Seeing that this is in direct connection with how the author of Hebrews described church leaders being held accountable before Jesus, I'd venture to take it one step further. Looking at the immediate, uh, immediate context, the wood, hay, and straw could very well include anything a minister does to self-aggrandize himself, selfishly pursue worldly wealth, or use his position to unbiblically manipulate and strong-arm people to do what he wants. All of those things will be burned up. Remember the original rebuke that Paul was giving, that all the of, of the Corinthians putting different church leaders up on pedestals and comparing and contrasting them according to their personal and spiritual skills and gifts. Since everything a minister does or says, including preaching, are to direct people to glorify God, anything pointing to glorification of themselves is as worthless as hay, wood, and straw and will last about as long in the fires of Jesus' revelation. Paul makes it very clear in verse 15 that those church leaders in Corinth doing things for their own selfish reasons will have nothing by the end of Jesus' revelation of their heart motivation behind everything they did or said, but their salvation will remain intact. We read that in verse 15. We read, if any man's work is burned up, that is, everything, everything he did was selfish and for self-aggrandizement and for uh, uh, strong-arming people and manipulating them and just doing everything based on a selfish heart attitude. If any man's work is completely burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself, notice, it still has nothing to do with salvation. But he himself will be saved. But it's like he ran out of a burning house, leaving everything behind in that house to just be destroyed. His salvation will still remain intact because again, that was won for him by the blood of Jesus and nothing will change that never-ending foundation. But everything else, he will lose. 
Again, this distinct judgment of ministers and church leaders is not one that has any connection to their eternal destiny. Their heavenly home has already been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Nothing can take that away from them. However, there is a clear recompense to everything they said and did in their ministry. On one extreme, a ministry that seeks only self-promotion will yield nothing of significance except for their bare salvation. That's it. The clothes on their back. On the other, a ministry that seeks only God promotion will yield a reward, according to verse 14. It may or may not be actual gold, silver, and precious stones, because the very streets of heaven will be paved with gold. I could just go and rip up a piece of the pavement if I wanted to, if I really wanted gold that badly. What this reward most likely is, 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 is what we already saw that will come up shortly in our current letter. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And this is what that reward will most likely be. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. On this side of heaven, with our fleshly eyes and the way that we fleshly, humanly process through different things, we might think, big whoop, that's... So what about that? But there is no worse feeling in the world to know that you've disappointed someone you love greatly and look up to. Is there? Likewise, there's no better feeling in the world than to be praised by someone you love greatly and look up to. Right? This whole judgment process may not matter at all that much to someone who doesn't think it worthwhile to serve God, but especially to those who devote their entire lives to it, it will mean everything to hear the words from Almighty God, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Imagine hearing those words from Almighty God. Let's celebrate together. It's a tough and difficult position to be called to church leadership, but it's one with a guaranteed reward if that calling is met with commitment to God's leading and God's glory. Preached a lot about what the minister has to look forward to. What does that mean for the rest of us? Pray. Pray for the church around the world on this International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Pray for the church around the world, and especially for those churches whose leaders and their families are under physical attack. Pray. Pray hard. Pray that the gospel would go forth, and even more so because of persecution. When the gospel is going forth and lives are being changed, who do you think are the first ones that have a bullseye right on them by the enemy. The ministers, the church leaders, who pray for the ministers around the world that are being physically and spiritually and every way persecuted. Their families being under persecution. Them losing them, their homes. Them having their children torn away from them. Them being thrown into prison. We just saw that pastor that is being held in prison for seven years. Pray, because they are the ones with the targets on their back. Because the enemy knows that if he can take out and he can take down the leaders, then the church will just 
fall away. That's what he thinks. So pray for the strength and resolve for church leaders all around the world for God's protection and provision for them. And pray for your church right now and the leaders God has called to be his under-shepherds right now in guiding, teaching, and counseling by the Holy Spirit and God's word. Pray for God's wisdom, strength, and protection to be upon them. Ministers are not immune to the enemy's attack. Again, if anything, they've got a big red target right on them. Pray. Pray for strength. Pray for wisdom. Pray for protection to be upon them and their families. May we all, as one, as one body, as was Paul's whole purpose in writing the words he's been writing, do the work that God has called for us to do. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words in Scripture. We thank you for the admonition and the warning that they give, especially to ministers of the gospel. Lord, we pray for your protection, your provision, your strength over ministers all around the world, that you would uphold them in your right hand, that your gospel would still go forth even through excruciating persecution. Lord, I pray that you would keep the enemy far far away from the ministers. And Lord, I pray that each of us would do our part, not only as we serve you, and, and we must still give an account before you, but in, in our prayers, that we would get down on our knees every day and cry out to you for the, for the advance and movement of your gospel all around the world and for the safety, protection, provision, and strength for your ministers all around the world. We thank you that you are a good God, that everything happens according to your sovereignty, and your will will be done in, on earth as it is in heaven. To you be all the glory. Amen. Please stand with me as we transition into our time before the Lord's table.